We've been walking our way through the Sermon on the Mount, which is three chapters of Matthew's Gospel. It's some of the most heart-piercing teaching you could ever hear, um, what Christ said and its relevance, how he just shines a spotlight into our hearts. And so um, when we come to this passage, I'm no less convinced and sure that this is going to be challenging for all of us. We come to the beginning of Matthew 7. It says this, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there's a, this log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to see the speck out of your brother's, or to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs. Let's say, trample them underfoot, and turn to attack you. And then over into Romans uh, 14. And we'll just read from verse 10, just read a few verses there. He says this. This is Paul speaking. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? We'll all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. We're going to be thinking, obviously, about the whole thing of judging, judgment. I think this is a profoundly important subject for us and for churches in general. I just want to give you a few reasons why I think that's the case. The first is to do with the fact that judgment is is something that can be at war with uh, building a community. And you know that what we're seeking to do here um, in, in this part of London and for the people that God gathers here is build a family um, if you saw the post I put up on the blog this week, that's the emphasis really. It's friends, first and foremost, we are a family. We are a people who gather as God's people in, into family. And so, you know how Paul put it here in Romans 14. He says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you, why do you despise your brother? The, the, the serious point here is that you can't really have a family where we're judging each other and despising each other, where people come into, um, into our family and they feel that they are being sort of looked down upon or their, their heart is being, um, is being assessed and sized up by one another. It's something that you would make you feel uncomfortable. It's something that makes others feel uncomfortable when we're the ones doing it. So that's the first thing. It, judgment destroys, cuts in against community. Another thing here is that it also destroys witness. Probably, you know, I think probably one of the most damaging things about the church in the last sort of 50, 60, 70 years, and one of the reasons it's seen such decline is because of a reaction to what has been perceived as judgment from the church on society. And so, I, I, you know, I, I couldn't certainly prove this, but I feel that it's one of the main reasons why churches are so empty these days, is that people feel that Christians are just so judgmental. Um, we're always sort of casting aspersions on on the society around us. Paul put it like this. He says, what have, I ha- what, what have I to do with judging outsiders? He says in 1 Corinthians 5. 
And so it seems to me that if we were to take this to heart, what Jesus is saying here, then it makes us as Christians a more effective people at communicating with and loving the world around us. I think you'll probably agree with that. And the third reason is just this, that clearly it's not pleasing to God. We live to please our Father, don't we? And if we have judgment that sort of grows inside us, and it does grow, it does become something that dominates your personality and your way of thinking, then, friends, you don't have a heart that's pleasing to God. And it's possible, in fact, I could put it even more strongly, it's possible that you have never, you've never seriously tasted the grace of God. You remember how when Jesus was out in the street and the Pharisees and the various religious people dragged a woman to him who'd been dragged out of bed with a man she wasn't married to. For some reason, they left the man there, they dragged this woman before Jesus and they say, should we stone her? And really it's a test. They want to know how is Jesus going to handle the situation in which this woman has clearly broken the law and was worthy of condemnation, but there are all kinds of questions floating around why are they doing this? Why are they bringing her to him? He's not He's not set himself up as the kind of civil um, law in, in society. Why is the man not being brought as well? All kinds of questions. And Jesus just starts writing on the ground. And what a mystery. We don't know what he wrote. But then he turns and looks into their eyes and says, He who is without sin cast the first stone. So friends, I think that when we're coming to this, we're getting very close to the heart of what God wants to produce in us. We called our church Grace London for a reason that we not only want to live under the grace of God, we want to show it to one another and to the people that we meet and interact with. We want his grace to reshape how we view others. The trouble is that this is one of those sneaky, stubborn sins. I mean that because I'm thinking, even as I begin to talk about this, probably some of you are sat there going, you know, I can think of someone who really needs to hear this message. <laughs> you know, they're just so judgmental. And, uh, you know, we, we quickly, we quickly pass the buck to somebody else and start judging others around us, don't we? And it's, it's an irony, but that's just the way the heart works. Do you remember how um, when David had slept with, with Bathsheba, a woman who wasn't his wife, and then to cover up his tracks... He arranges for her husband, Uriah, to get killed on the battlefield. So arranges for him to be on the front line. And effectively, it's, it's a kind of murder because he, he dies very unnecessarily. And Nathan, the prophet, who is kind of like the conscience to the king. God's appointed him as this kind of independent voice to speak into the life of the king. So David was no dictator. He was submitted to the word of God and, and the, the voice of the prophets. Nathan comes to him and starts telling him a story. He tells him a story that about two, rich, uh, two men in a city. One's rich and the other's poor. One man has lots and lots of animals. And the other man has only one ewe lamb that he's raised from birth to be like a, a, a child in their family. I don't know what that looks like, whether this lamb sleeps in the house or what. They feed them the same food they eat. It's all a bit strange. But this guy really loves this animal, just like we sometimes love our dogs and, and whatnot. So... As the story goes, he says, Nathan's telling David, he says, when, when this rich man was receiving a visitor, instead of killing one of his many, many animals, he, he steals the poor man's lamb, and he's killed the lamb, and then he's, he's given it to this visitor for, for lunch. And David's response is really interesting, because he says, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. David thinks it's a true story. 
He says he should restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing because he had no pity. And Nathan says, you are the man. When we're coming to the subject of judgment, the temptation is to put yourself in David's position to think about the sins of others before we think about the way that this applies to your heart. So perhaps today, more than any other day, I'm giving you permission to think about no one around you and just about yourself, at least for the first part of what we're talking about. I want you to come in humility under the Word of God and understand what this is going to say to you. It's one of those messages that can reshape how we do community. It's so, so vital. Here's another problem, though. When we're talking about this subject, I think we're kind of preaching to the choir a little bit, which gives me a challenge, because if there's one ethic which is widely accepted in the Western world, and in modern London particularly, it's this, that we ought not to judge. So what fresh thing can I stand up and say to you in a culture that believes that this is practically gospel? Judgment is the great evil of our age. In fact, to be a bigot is the biggest sin of our age. Well, we want to get into that, and I want to address some of the misunderstandings of the way our culture views this whole issue. But, you know, I mentioned this last week. I think, I think that the trouble is that our culture doesn't really understand what's meant by these words, do not judge. And this whole story with Jermaine Greer, have you, have you followed what's happened? How this lady has stood up for women's rights um, vehemently, even aggressively, over decades. So she is viewed as one of the champions of feminism. She's invited to Cardiff University to go and speak on women and power. One of her, her great subjects, you could say. And the feminist society within the university began to oppose this event, calling Jermaine Greer a misogynist, a woman hater, because she doesn't accept men who've had uh, operations to become women as women. She says it's, it's nonsense. So they say she should not, ought not speak because she is a woman hater. And I've picked up an amazing article on this and spiked online where it says this. There's a dark, twisted irony to the witch hunting of Jermaine Greer over her transphobia which is that those who are raging against Greer for being a hateful bigot actually fit the description of bigot far better than she does. Bigotry, in the words of the Oxford Dictionary, is intolerance towards those who hold different opinions from oneself. He goes on, there could be no more apt tag for those calling for Greer to be expelled from polite society for her opinions on trans issues. He goes on and says their problem is they haven't actually, they don't even understand what the word means. He goes on, this new bigotry disguised as liberalism is running riot today. In fact, in an authoritarian linguistic twist that will have Orwell spinning in his grave, bigotry is now most commonly enforced under the guise of tackling bigotry. Now that ought to wake you up to realize that when the Christian cites what Jesus has to say here, do not judge, we are clearly talking about something different from what's going on in society all around us. And I want to just address three misunderstandings before we get into the meat of what Jesus has to say to us. The first is this, the words judge not do not mean that God is relaxed about sin. The modern world seems to swing between out and out atheism, denial of God altogether, or a belief in some kind of God who basically is formed in our own image. He's basically a reflection of 21st century liberal culture, which is a bit weird, isn't it? 
It's a bit suspicious when your God exactly resembles you. And so the modern world flits between these two options. And the God of the kind of mushy, liberal way of thinking is a God who does not see and certainly does not condemn wrongdoing or sin. So I've said in the past, sin has become probably one of the dirtiest words in our language. Friends, if that were what Jesus meant when he says, judge not, don't you think that the entire content of the Sermon on the Mount would be so profoundly different? When he starts searching our hearts and saying that just to lust at a woman is to commit adultery, just to be angry is to commit murder, Christ's spotlight is brighter. His, his word is sharper and it cuts deeper than anything that people have ever realized about him. The words judge not do not mean that God is relaxed about sin. The great proof of that, of course, is that if it were the case, Christ would never have had to go to the cross. We must never understand this phrase to be a weakening of what God desires or his standards. Secondly, the words judge not do not mean that you shouldn't have an opinion about others. Now, this might be a slightly more controversial. I think a lot of people think that to be non-judging means that you have to be totally indifferent to the choices people around you make. The reason I have a problem with that is partly because it, it just goes against some of the things that Jesus says, even here. See that last verse we read? Don't, what does he say? Let me get it right. Don't give dogs what's holy, don't throw your pearls before pigs. He assumes that we're going we're gonna to look at some people and think in our hearts, you're basically a dog, or you're a pig. If you don't make that decision, then you, you, can't, you can't follow what he has to say here. I think he's, he's talking about people, by the way, it's just an aside, people who... Um, persistently and deliberately keep rejecting the gospel. So Christ calls for us to make judgments all the time in life. He doesn't mean be indifferent to people around you. In fact, I'll go a bit further and say, the problem with indifference, the problem with just the kind of vague, grey acceptance of everybody's choices, is that it is so unloving and anti-community. Indifference comes out of the soil of Western individualism. That you are your own God. So the way you choose to live is right, is righteous. You get to choose your own morals. So we can only have an indifference towards what other people think when I have become king of my own life and each of us is the king of our own kingdoms. But for that to be the case, community has to break down and individualism has to rule. It's antithetical. It's in contradiction to the idea of family and the idea of community. Community has to have boundaries to exist in any way, shape, or form. So friends, when Christ says, judge not, he does not mean that we ought to be indifferent to to what's happening around us. And that brings me on to the third thing. I ought to say on that, by the way. No, forget it. Let me move on. The third thing, it doesn't mean this. Don't ever challenge sin in someone else. I think this is one of the most commonly cited verses in the Bible, isn't it? When people say, um, aren't Christians supposed to not judge? And it's said in a way that basically says, if I want to do what I want to do, you're not allowed to challenge me because you'll be disobeying Jesus if you do. And friends, I, I really believe, and we'll, we'll show this a little bit further as we go in a bit deeper, you don't love your brothers or your sisters if that's 
if that's what you believe, if you think that you have no place to challenge sin in another person's life. If we don't do that, we're not the church. Right, let's get into this. What does he mean then? First of all, he means that we ought not to be judgmental. First couple of verses. Judge not that you be not judged. With the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. I think there's a difference between judging and being judgmental. Let me try and just show you what I mean. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul's dealing with a problem in the church. There's all kinds of rank sin going on in the church. You know, guys sleeping with their mother-in-law and all kinds of like revolting stuff. And, and Paul, he, he says, you've got to deal with this. You've got to deal with the leaven in the church. You've got to uproot it, upweed what's going on in your community. And uh, he puts it like this. He says, what have I to do with judging outsiders? I read that to you earlier. But then he goes on, is it not those inside the church who you are to judge? So there's a kind of judgment which belongs inside the church, where it's a communal thing, it's under the, the, the leadership of the elders, whereby we are seeking to deal with sin in our community, in our own lives, in the lives of others. I think what Jesus is talking about here is not that kind of judgment. I think he's talking about being judgmental as a mindset or a posture towards people around you. And you have to understand that this is set against the backdrop of the people who he most opposed who were the religious authorities, the Pharisees of the time. The Pharisees stood for a few things which undergirded Jesus' way of thinking in, in teaching this. They stood for things like this, that they prized the external over the internal. They were much more interested in observing their outer obedience, looking holy before others, than they were in addressing their own hearts. Friends, even just in saying that, we feel the finger of the Spirit, don't we, on us, that how easily we slip into that way of thinking. It's much easier to manage your outer behavior than it is to have a heart that's right before God. So that was one thing. Another they believed in works righteousness. I'm just rehearsing stuff most of you know, but let me just lay this down first of all. They believed that the way to God was through your right behavior. And then on the back of that, they also believed that they had got it right. They felt that when they went into synagogue, they were the best people in the room. When they went to pray, they had reason to boast, not only before men, but before the holy God, who they were supposed to be worshipping. So in Luke 18, Jesus so mockingly derides this way of thinking. He says, He told a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. They thought they were better than people around them. And it says that the Pharisee starts to pray. He goes into pray and he says, God, I thank you. I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. <laughs> you can see it, can't you? The kind of attitude apart, the pride, the self-righteousness, the superiority. That is what Christ is looking at here when he says, don't judge. Now, I know for us who have grown up, we know the gospel, we love Jesus, we love the grace of God. We hear that and we say, amen, because we know that that description is anti-gospel. We know that what they stood for is very much against what we believe. But friends, don't think that we can get out from under this so easily. Do any of these things ever characterize your heart? 
Do you ever assume the worst in others? Do you ever jump to conclusions based on limited evidence? Think you know why someone's done what they've done? Do you ever take pleasure in finding out the wrongs of other people? Maybe there's somebody in your life right now who you feel constantly peeved with. And every time they do something which further confirms how you feel about them, there's a part of you that's kind of happy because it justifies how you feel about them. I've been there. That's what Jesus is talking about. Do you speak about the wrongs of other people? Spread them about. Not even necessarily directly. We can do this indirectly. A.W. Pink put it like this. If you say about someone, he possesses this or that virtue, but, well, least said, soonest mended. We might not use that language, but it's easy, isn't it, to insinuate something about someone, which he says is actually even more damaging than just saying what you have as a problem with them. Do you enjoy speaking about the wrongs in other people? Or do you distance yourself from others based on assumptions about them? The way they speak, the way they dress, the color of their skin, the way they posture themselves in church. This is the kind of thing Jesus wants to address. You know, we all heartily agree that the Pharisees got it wrong and that Christ wants us to believe in grace, but it's much easier to nurture that mentality than any of us realize. Back in that passage in Romans 14, which I, we read right at the start, Paul wants to underline a couple of things for us. Just coming against this whole mentality, which actually sadly can flourish inside churches. One of the things he wants us to see is that you are not God. I know you know that intellectually, but hear it again. You are not God. Doesn't that come over in what he says? He says, we'll all stand before the judgment seat of God. In other words, it's his job to judge us. He goes on, each of us will give an account of himself to God. So relax. You don't have to judge your friends and your other people at church or whatever. The reason why this has to be underlined is because you are not qualified to stand in the place of God. As Eliab, sorry, as Samuel came to realize when he was looking for the next king of Israel after Saul, first of all, he saw Eliab, the oldest son of Jesse, and thought, that's the man. And God said in his spirit, no, that's not the man. And the word of God to, to Samuel was that, God doesn't look on the outer appearance, he looks on the heart. The trouble with us is we have very, very limited knowledge about one another. We only know what we see on the outside. It's easy, isn't it, for us to hide to our advantage or to our disadvantage what's actually going on in our heart. Some people hide sin in their heart, some people hide a pure heart in an outer skin of trying to look nonchalant and like they don't care or like they're trying to be the bad boy or whatever. The reality is only God knows what's actually going on in your heart. You're not qualified to judge. That's what Paul's trying to underline for us. We're all going to stand before God. Let him take care of that. 
Psalm 103, which I began with, says that the God knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust, which means that he's a, a much more compassionate judge than you or I are, in fact. Whilst he has the highest standards imaginable, God understands all the circumstances of what goes on in a person's heart and in their life and in their situations. And he remembers that we're dust, something we actually forget about one another far too often. You're not God. You can't put yourself in that position and think that you can make an accurate assessment about somebody else, their motives, their desires, their reasons for doing the things that they do. I think it was Ian McLaren who said, be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. How true it is that when we come to church on Sunday, we're bringing all kinds of rubbish with us, aren't we? And we meet together as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are bringing all kinds of rubbish, things that weigh us down. But thank God that whilst we are not qualified to judge one another, we can trust that Christ is more kind and understanding than we are. It says of him in Hebrews, 7, in Hebrews 2, that he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. To become merciful and faithful. Christ's mercy is stronger than mine, so I dare not put myself in the position of judge. That's one thing Paul wants to tell us. The other is this, that there's a warning attached to all of this. Friends, Christ said it here, with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. As Paul tells us, there is a future judgment awaiting us. So when Jesus says, don't judge, that you be not judged, what is he warning us about there? I think it comes down to a couple of things. One is, obviously, that all of us are going to stand before the judgment seat of God at some point. And the great danger is that if you have a heart that has fostered all this judgment about other people... The question is, have you fostered any humility in your own heart such that you can receive the salvation that God has to offer? If he's not only talking about the future judgment, I think he's also talking about what God can do in your life to humble you. Hebrews 12 talks about God as a father who is so loving that he will deal with you when you're out of line. His love is evidenced by the fact that he wants to discipline you when you're out of line. And one of the things that he's looking for is this, judgmentalism. How does God deal with somebody who fosters judgmentalism in their heart? Well, doesn't it say in the Bible that God casts down the, pride, the proud? That he has a way of, of somehow rubbing our faces in the dirt of our own lives so as to humble us before him. And it's said really as a comfort. Friends, God will somehow deal with you if you foster this kind of pride in your heart. Jesus says, do not be judgmental. Doesn't it bring us back to that first beatitude? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Christ wants to, us to nurture inside ourselves such a humility that we are acknowledged that before I can look at the sins of others, I have seen in my own heart that I am bankrupt before the holy God. Don't be judgmental. Let's move on. He says, secondly, don't be hypocritical. 
Why do you see the speck? It just means the tiny fleck of sawdust. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log or the plank that's in your own eye? Well, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's this log in your own eye? He's obviously using a kind of exaggeration to underline his point here, but the basic failure comes down to two things. It comes down, on the one hand, to our tendency always to compare ourselves horizontally with other people around us to assess how we're getting along. It's much easier, isn't it, to contemplate ourselves in the light of people around us than it is to contemplate ourselves under God's profound light. So we assess ourselves horizontally, not vertically. Another aspect of this is that we tend to give more weight to our outer sins and our behavior, just like the Pharisees, than we do to what's going on in our hearts. So we make judgments about people based on their behavior and forget that our hearts can be uglier than we'd ever dare admit. Again, A.W. Pink put it like this. He says, The contrast pointed out by Christ is between one who allows some lust to prevail over him and yet presumes to criticize another for some infirmity or minor offense. It's the easiest thing in the world for us to become obsessed with what we see wrong in people around us, and all the while carrying around this enormous plank in our own eye. I don't think Jesus wants us to assume that we are necessarily always worse than people around us, but he does want us to search and look around and deal with the obvious things. And friends, I can guarantee that even as I'm talking, there's not a person in this room who doesn't know what that plank is in your own life. You know it, don't you? He says, deal with that first. Christian life is meant to be one of consistent, constant repentance. Always taking these planks out of our own eyes. Let's move on to the last thing. Jesus says that you should work hard to uproot sin wherever you find it. You hypocrite, he says. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You know, despite everything that I've said so far, we have to understand that the underlying theme of the Sermon on the Mount is that God wants a holy people. And that part of that is going to be a duty to confront one another in love about the sins that we find in one another's hearts. In Matthew 18, again, another one of Jesus' long sermons, he starts describing the kingdom and what the kingdom is like. And one of the things he says is, he says, when you you see a sin in a brother's life, you go to him, you challenge him. If he doesn't accept you, you bring along someone else. And if they still don't accept you, you bring along the, the, the elders and then you put it before the church. Jesus is not wanting to dial down even a fraction the responsibility that we have towards one another to deal with the specks that are in each other's eyes. 
in Galatians 6, he he puts it like this. He says, brothers, if anyone's caught in any transgression, and just think, this is where you have permission to start thinking about the people around you in a nice way. (laughs) If anyone's caught in any transgression. So if you know of anyone in the church who's caught in something, he says, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. There's something wonderful about being in a community where you know that we have each other's backs. And we're not just going to let sin go unchallenged or unnoticed. That's absolutely integral to what Jesus is saying here. There are specks in each other's eyes that we have to carefully deal with. But the key here is that we do have to deal with it with profound care. Now listen to this. This is just so, so brilliant. This is how Martin Lloyd-Jones talks about it. Remember, he, um, he was a doctor, and he writes this. He says, The procedure of getting the speck out of an eye is a very difficult operation. There's no organ that's more sensitive than the eye. Just try touching your eyeball. You blink immediately, don't you? The moment the finger touches it, it closes up. It's so delicate. And what you require above everything else in dealing with it is sympathy, patience, calmness, coolness. That's what's required because of the delicacy of the operation. Transfer all that into the spiritual realm, he says. You're going to handle a soul. He's talking about situations where you, you want to help a brother or a sister. You're going to handle a soul. You're going to touch the most sensitive thing in a man. How can we get the little speck out? There's only one thing that matters at that point, and that is that you should be humble. You should be sympathetic. You should be so conscious of your own sin and your own unworthiness that when you find it in another, far from condemning, you feel like weeping. You're full of sympathy and compassion. You really want to help. How do we prepare our hearts to deal with each other? First, Jesus says, take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to deal with the speck in your brother's eye. We've got to deal with the plank first of all. Can you honestly say that your conscience is clear? Are your secret sins less bad than their public sin? Just take it out, he says. Something else we need to do is we need to start looking at God a bit more, a lot more. Do you remember his tenderness towards you when you came to him begging for forgiveness? Perhaps the first time you came to him, or the umpteenth time, when you've sinned again and again. Do you remember how gentle he was with you? The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He'll not always chide or tell you off. 
He'll not, not keep his anger forever. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he taken our sins from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Whenever you feel it growing up inside you, that familiar annoyance, that familiar frustration, that dismissive attitude, that desire to have words with them or to make their life a misery if you prefer the passive-aggressive approach, avoidance, cutting them off, giving them the cold shoulder, bawling them out, Whenever you feel that desire rising up in you, surely it's pretty regularly, remember how God has dealt with you. He knows your frame. He remembered that you were dust. You only had to ask, and his love for you came gushing out. The last thing I want to say on this is that I think we need to wait often. And just to reaffirm, Christ says, deal with the log and then take the speck out of your brother's eye. He doesn't want us to forget the point that we are called to be a holy community, that we are meant to deal with the sin in our midst, that when somebody is going astray, it might well be your job to help get them on track. But friends, before you do it, Let's seek to get to a place in our hearts where we are more upset about their sin than we are angry. There's a funny thing going on in the letter to Corinthians where Paul had obviously written 1 Corinthians. It's a pretty strong letter. Sometime in the intervening years, he written them again. And his second letter has disappeared. We don't know what it said. But one thing we can be sure of is that it was very harsh. I mean, he you could probably feel the frustration coming out through the ink on the page. And so when they read it in church on Sunday, probably some people were indignant, some people were weeping, and there's all kinds of mess just going on in the church on a Sunday service. It's just the opposite of what we English people are like. <laughs> but then he writes to them a third time, and it's become the letter to Corinthians that we have in our Bibles. And he says to them this, he says, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart. And with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. May the love of God rule the way we relate to one another, the way we think about one another, and the way we help one another as we foster this spirit of grace, modeled after the grace of God that has been so abundantly poured onto us. We're going to take communion, and it just feels so perfect way for us to conclude this, because as we eat the bread and drink the wine, Christ is inviting us again to come and kneel before him at the cross. As I've been talking about the plank in your eye, 
I think there's probably not a person in the room who isn't conscious. I've got something I need to confess, God. And if your conscience is clear, praise God. But let's continually come before our Savior broken for us and remember that it's clear because he already gave himself for you. And maybe you're also just aware that there's someone else who you want to help, you want to speak to, you want to lovingly challenge. Let's not dismiss that that's something Christ wants us to do. He absolutely wants us to do it. But he wants us to deal with our own hearts first, doesn't he?